guys, welcome back to Gaming Trend Podcast. This episode is about D&D, the 5th edition. Uh, so today, you are joined by me, Erica, your host. And the not-inept John. I like it. Uh, and I'm Mike Dunn, I'm the lead tabletop editor. And I'm John Farrell, another John, a senior tabletop editor. And I'm Stephen Starkey, a tabletop editor. So pretty much everyone except for me and Miller knows what we're talking about today. <laughs> uh, Miller and I, we've played a couple times at D&D, but these guys here on the show are just amazing. They play it all the time. They do their own figures. Mike is awesome. His figure painting is super crazy. Uh, but let's go ahead and get into Game On. Game On! Now, the reason we're doing this episode is because 5th edition has finally hit the mark of lasting longer or as long as the 4th edition. It's surprising to realize that 5th edition has lasted as long as a prior edition because in so many ways it feels like it's early in its career. Um, Playing it consistently, there are certain specific portions of it that feel long in the tooth, but they've got a long way to go where they could keep people satisfied with releases and... Um, I, I think it's probably still got a long lifespan left to it. Yeah, I, I'm actually starting to feel a little bit of anxiety myself about that because, like, I I don't want 5th edition to go anywhere. Like, I just rediscovered D&D, I guess, about two years ago now. And 5th edition has kind of encapsulated a lot of what I've always loved about D&D, and I'm having a blast. So... I'm worried about it. I'm worried that they're going to come out with a new rule set. I don't foresee that based on what their release schedule has been like and, and the stuff that they're coming out with. Uh, I mean, honestly, I, I see fifth edition as having a really, really long lifespan ahead of it. That's what I've heard a lot about. Uh, a lot of people who used to play D and D when they were kids left it. And now they're coming back um, to the fifth edition and it's what they're saying is so much better. It's easier to grasp. The character buildup is a lot simpler. Uh, it's all in all a better addition. I actually thought it'd be a lot more additions than it is just the fifth. <laughs> well, it depends on how you count your numbers because there was Dungeons and Dragons Basic and Expert and Advance and multiple editions of Advance. And then with third edition, there was 3.5. So, uh,. It's been a confusing 40 years. Yeah. I'm not even sure how long it's been. Okay. Okay, so it's, go, it's going up like how Microsoft updates their versions of soft OS. <laughs> <laughs> That's, it's like the Kingdom Hearts games. We're sort of oh, on no. five. We're sort of on 20. <laughs> At least it isn't like how Microsoft decides to name their consoles. Oh, God. Very true. <laughs> but Steven, what do you think? Well, the fact that it's lasted as long as 4th edition, um, I think 4th edition was the weakest of the editions as far as the general the general player base was concerned. So it, it, really, um, it really suffered from um, retaining previous players, and 5th edition brought all those people back. So I think that you see uh, a lot of people that played for the decades that 3 and 3.5 were out and are quite happy to jump right back in at 5, which feels more like those previous editions than 4th. So I think that that helps it have these legs that it has, and we'll see it keep going for quite a while. Now, how many of you have played Pathfinder? I have played Pathfinder. 
fifth edition was made to rival against Pathfinder. What are the differences between these two? So it's kind of complicated. Uh, the, the shortest version is that 3.5 in many senses never really went away because Pathfinder began as a series of 3.5 house rules, more or less, and has grown out from there for 12 or so years. My timeline might be off there. Yeah, and, and second edition just came out, and I hear they made some significant changes, but it's still at its core a roll. T- I mean, a d twenty game, right? Yes, they they've tooled around a lot the way that you interact with the action economy and the way that you build characters, but uh, at the end of the day, it's the same attributes, the same dice system. Uh, it really is at its core pretty similar to three point five in a lot of ways. Now, from my understanding, like Pathfinder. It's like way more intense to set up, or am I wrong? Uh, I think that rules-wise, the Pathfinder, because it shares so much in common with the old 3.5 system and the, the under based on the OpenGL license that they were using back then, um, 3.5 was pretty crunchy, and um, Fifth Editions got some of that, but it was. It was pretty rules laden, and so I think Pathfinder, from I, from my experience with it, it was very similar to that. What do you say, John? Yeah, I know that some explicit design goals for Fifth Edition was one to make an easier entry point, so it's not as complicated to make a character or play the game or make modifications. They also made a serious point to keep the math more limited. Um, so your maximum bonuses or penalties wouldn't get too excessive because in Pathfinder there was a lot of trading of small abilities and bonuses to just get the numbers to be a ridiculous level, which also made it more difficult to balance those encounters as a GM. Yeah, I actually find it ironic that um, 4th edition was such a knee-jerk reaction to 3.5, and it was... Like they uh, ostensibly designed it for easier entry, uh, but it turned a lot of people off. I, th- I mean, I played. Uh, I think I played part of one campaign, maybe about five or six sessions, fourth edition, and I didn't think it was bad. I just thought it was super different, and it reminded me of video games so much. And that's. I feel like that's kind of obviously what they were going for. They wanted to capture some of that wow uh, audience, some of that EverQuest audience. And, uh, but they never quite pulled it off. But fifth edition, like, I mean, fifth edition brought D and D into the mainstream. I mean, it's insane how, how big it is right now. Uh, it's, it's, and, and it still feels like old school D and D that I played back when I was, you know, a teenager. Now, do you guys agree with the statement fifth edition is moving away from board game centric aesthetics to the spoken word. I know that you can still use figures and mapping in the 5th edition, uh, but a lot of people think that you don't really need it, and the 5th edition has moved away from that. I think so. I think that um, you saw a trend over time towards um, an expectation that when you play, you're going to have a a grid of 5-foot-by-5-foot squares, and that everybody's going to have minis um, and minis and uh, a grid and a map became an essential part of D&D for many groups. Um, and while it's pretty useful, and even hearkening back to, yeah, whenever I was playing as a teenager in the, in the 80s, we did 
use minis and put them on the table on occasion to help to visualize, especially a very complicated fight. Um, but it wasn't an essential part. And I think that by the time that fourth edition rolled around, that um, it was a, an integral component. Not everybody used it, but um, uh, now y- you can play without it. Um, and actually, I think a lot of people have gone through the experience of weaning off of it, uh, especially recently with uh, everybody going online. Um, so, uh, yeah, but I think that there's definitely a step away from that. I think not so much because they were trying to change the aesthetic, but because they were trying to make it more universal and to drag, not drag, but to, to draw in players that had stepped away from it because they'd like to just keep it just theater of the mind, not dealing with minis. Uh, that also removes a bit of the complexity because something that 4th edition focused on heavily was communicating in squares. You would have abilities that would push a certain distance of squares or pull and you would have radius around you or an area would uh, an area of effectability would go off. And with 5th edition, by removing that, they save a lot of small detailed rules about how you have to interact with the space around you and... Um, just goes to do something that was a major design goal of this entire edition, which was to make it more immediately accessible. So I would actually counter that to a certain degree. I, I don't think it's necessarily moving away, though I guess 4th edition did require it more, so technically it would be moving away. I think what it really focused on was making it more of an optional thing. They did keep the rule, some rules in place that did outline how to play with tabletop minis or any other visualization tool as we're finding it just it does it goes beyond the tabletop and into to apps like roll 20 and uh and that sort of thing where you have tokens and basically virtual tabletop representations i think they just made it i think they just made it more flexible in general um i i if if there was one word that i would describe fifth edition with its flexibility uh, I think it's the most flexible edition that's come out, and as a DM, I feel like I can pick and choose more what how, how I play and how I run my game uh, than any any other edition before. In full disclosure, full disclosure, uh, Stephen was actually uh, my DM uh, back in high school. Uh, so that's awesome. So yeah. <laughs> and uh, if you want to see. If uh, two old guys who played D&D in high school can still hack and slash with the best of them, then you might want to tune into our Twitch channel Wednesday nights. But we're doing a, we're doing a one-on-one session uh, that may grow into more. Who knows? We'll see how it goes. But yeah, check it out. It's it's uh, Wednesday nights Twitch on our gaming on the Gaming Trend channel. We're gonna try it on Roll Twenty. Uh, so. You know, anyone listening to uh, to this podcast, uh, please give us a shot and uh, we might have some fun. Awesome. And approximately what time do you air this on Wednesdays? 9.30 Eastern, 8.30 Central, 7.30 Mountain. I'm not going to go to Hawaii. We'll have to figure that out. Awesome. Um, so do you believe with the 5th edition that DMs have more power and that players have more options to complete tasks? Honestly, I mean, I feel like that was already there. Like, it's not like it's not like it's changed. Um, of course, I didn't really DM worth a dang uh, before fifth edition. 
So uh, there is that. I may be a little biased. I don't know. I, I guess I guess it's just been around so long at this point that anybody who's been DMing for a long time or playing for a long time just feels like they can just do whatever they feel necessary to further the narrative of the game. And and 5th edition encourages that, probably more than any other edition beforehand. So in a roundabout way, yes. <laughs> um. A lot of people believe that DMs have more power just because there's so much more you can do. Um, there's more story options. You can, I guess, build more to what you want the game to be. Um, and then players, um, I know that in the fourth edition, whenever you wanted to do a task, you had to look at your abilities. But in the fifth edition, you can look at your roles and that goes with that. Yeah, I mean, as far as the DM thing, like... I remember when I was 12 playing a D&D game with some GIs on the base uh, that I lived at because I was a military brat. And they came up with a game where we were from the present. Our characters were from present time and we had a time machine. And so we got to fill this elevator sized time machine with whatever we wanted to bring back in time to this fantasy world. And like, you know, I mean, that's just something that the DM made up. He did a lot of like uh, custom uh, custom work to make that happen. And I, I honestly, I think I didn't make it past the second session because I was I wasn't there to do that. I wanted to be in a fantasy world. I wanted swords <laughs> and, and yeah. dragons and stuff. I, I guess my point is, is like. DMs have been making the games they've been wanting to make. After a few decades of the game, like the people making D&D finally decided to lean into that a little bit more and say, hey, you know what? That thing you're doing, it's awesome. Keep doing it. And we're going to try to give you more tools to help you do it. You know, doing homebrew stuff and, and recognizing it. And and also letting a, a kind of a sub-industry rise of people who are you know, making their their own modules and making their own rules for, like, new character races and character classes and such. I guess they were kind of doing that with the Roll20. That was the whole point of the Roll20 thing, right? You know, open open up the core set for... I mean, D20. D20, not Roll20. Ah! I mix those two up all the time! And thus began the giant glut of D20 adaptations of every conceivable thing. Yes, Exactly. Yeah, I mean, what's the site? What's the official site where you can go and upload and download and sell your your stuff? Uh, the Adventurers League or something like that. Dungeon Masters Guild. So I think that that's where um, the 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 idea of having more power and more options really um, where I see this edition flourishing in a way that previous editions haven't is the the ability to interface and interact with the game designers. It's um, it's unparalleled. It just hasn't been that way before. Even when they were designing 4th edition, the internet was available in a way that, and opened up communications in a way that it hadn't been around before, but it was pretty, pretty one way. Um, it was, you were getting some information about what 4th edition was going to be, and there was some feedback. But with 5th edition, they just stepped into a totally new area. The whole design and development of 5th edition was open. Um, people were downloading. I was part of it. We were downloading the game and playtesting it and giving feedback and giving an opinion. I remember when we were in high school playing 
being so excited to get my dungeon magazine to read the sage advice section and hope that the question that I had written in and mailed in the mail to them was being answered so that I could find out how to adjudicate some bizarre rule. Um, and now you can get that information over Twitter you can listen to their podcasts and hear an interview with Jeremy Crawford and find out what he was thinking when they went through that rule. And we constantly hear from the makers of the game, hey, these are the rules that we built, but you're the ones playing the game. Do what you want and have fun. And that's something that you just didn't hear before or read or see, not because they didn't want to tell you. They just didn't have the platform or maybe they didn't think about telling you that. So. Yeah, they repurposed the whole Unearthed Arcana brand name for just that so that they could push out new rules or new ideas and get them vetted by actual players. As I understand it, a lot of that stuff ends up in the published supplements. It's a great system, like really just constantly blown away at how receptive they are. And I, I mean, I remember when Steven and I went to Gen Con a few years back and we got to try the uh, prototype mm -hmm. of fifth edition that was that was super cool it just i i think that's that's another another word to associate with this it's not only flexible it's to you know we have accessibility to the people that are actually making the rules john do you have anything to add um so i think fifth edition is less it is still distinctly designed around combat i mean mostly um, but not to the same degree as certain prior editions, more like third and fourth, where you had, you know, really everything in your cool toolkit was an explicit mechanical way to interact with the world. Now, because you have a little bit more freedom just in the advantage and disadvantage mechanic and the open-ended nature of a lot of your abilities, even if some of them, like your background abilities, aren't that useful, they're really doing a good job of just pointing the DMs in the direction of, like, you can use a number of different things, even if it's just a character's history, as a way to give them new problems to let them complete tasks. Okay, great. I know that we talked about aids with the game. There's some aids that I found online. So let's go into Take My Money. Shut up and take my money. Now, um, I like to go to Kickstarter to find some goodies. Uh, so the first one we have is Fantasy City Sites and Scenes 2. So what this is is a 48-page plus cover inside covers. It's an 8.5 by 11 book for game masters who are in need of inspiration. The book details 16 different city locations and offers up a selection of encounter ideas. Do you guys download your um, ideas? Do you create your own? What do you do when you DM? So last year... I wrapped up about a year's worth of DMing. I, I, my intent was to run Tomb of Annihilation. As I started going through it and starting to, you know, get my feet as a DM, uh, I realized that there were certain directions I wanted to take things in, but I didn't. In, in Tomb of Annihilation, Chult, the jungle, is just all right you, you you basically do a bunch of wilderness walking and then you get to one of these other locations well there's a lot of continent there and there's a you could either just like kind of zip through it and like abstract it away or you could try to have some encounters along the way 
And I actually found quite a bit of supplementary material that other people came up with, Dungeon Master's Guild. And I was able to kind of use some of that and like use that as a launching point along with the core rules, rig together my own my own narrative and, and, and that sort of thing. I found that really, really useful. I also have a few additional supplemental books that I've bought since then that I've read parts of but haven't gotten to use the rules of. Probably most notable would be Strongholds and Followers by MCDM Productions, uh, which is run by Matt Colville, who does a really good video series on YouTube on how to DM. Uh, he basically came up with new ways to run NPCs and like military groups and, and have it so that you could have retainers and such that could be graduated into full-blown characters like if your character died for instance so interesting stuff uh haven't really tried it yet there's just there's a there's so much out there so much good stuff out there it's hard to really keep track of it all great so again this is called fantasy city sites and scenes too you can get both one and two the pdf copies for only seven dollars or get a physical copy of fantasy city sites and two for eighteen dollars plus a free copy of the first one pdf uh, it's fully funded already on kickstarter so there's no question if you'll get it or not <laughs> i know that we've talked about models and scenery do you guys use like actual 3d mapping anything like that I know when the last time I played, we uh, just stacked stuff on the table and said, this is a mountain. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, it was a cat, and they kept moving, so we incorporated that into the play. And something that's been changing this equation recently is 3D printers. Yeah. Uh, where I'll just have someone say, oh, for next session, I'm going to need a bunch of boulders. That's easy enough. I can find that anywhere on the internet. Give me five large, differently shaped black boulders. Yes, uh, and that leads into another Kickstarter that I found. Uh, this is called Hexton Hills 3D Printable Campaign Map Files. It's over 2,000% funded. Um, everything is downloadable. It is 3D printing. It is It uses resin and STL formatting. Uh, so the price ranges anywhere from $21 to $401. Uh, <laughs> so if you look at this, I mean, just everything they have is monstrous. They go into detail. They have all these little interlocking hexagon tiles, um, which is great. So they're not going to slip and slide. They're not going to go over on the table. And you can paint these as well. You know what this reminds me of? What? Settlers of Catan. It does. Yes, it does. I was like, <laughs> mm, what is this? <laughs> So I'm I'm a terrain junkie. I'm going I'm going to full on admit to that. I have a bunch of Dwarven Forge stuff. Not their last Kickstarter, but the Kickstarter before. I basically backed the entire thing, and I just got some like little plastic trees that I kickstarted uh, last year in the mail the other day. I do a lot of mini painting. I really, really, really like the tactile. Like, I'm going to set this up as best as I can. And I've I've done printouts and like mixed it up with physical terrain. I did I painted everybody's minis that was in my last campaign. That's that part of it is a is a big deal for me. And I actually I'm trying to figure out ways to kind of retain that physical aspect, my eventual online play and streaming uh and i think I've, I've i've got some ways figured out to do that i'm dying to use some of this terrain well i do have a character sheet right now so. <laughs> <laughs> 
John and Steven, do you guys use any um, 3D terrain, anything like that in any of your games? So I've almost always dungeon mastered. And I found that my use of terrain and minis is based on my players usually. So if I have a group that tends to gravitate towards that, or if I have some players that really need to see it on the table, then I'll go that way. And uh, if I have a group that's more they don't need it, then I, I'm just as good to have a grid of squares and I just draw with a marker if we really need to clarify something. So I've done both. But yeah, uh, I remember in living in San Antonio with and playing D&D with the current owner of uh, Nightwatch, right? Um, Pork and I were playing all the time. We had a great game going on there and uh, at his house. And I spent so much time just building models with uh, pop, <laughs> like popsicle stick houses and just yeah. everything that I could get my hands on and building stuff. And that was when Dwarven Forge first came out. And I remember um, going over to his house one night and he was like, look what I got. And I was like, oh, <laughs> he's like, it only costs a million dollars and you're in. Right. So, uh, so I never uh, bought a, a single piece of Dwarven Forge, but um, that led to just a whole a whole new level of us getting together and building and, and tr- building out the terrain for every game session. Um, I do find that what I don't like about having terrain like that is that unless you have a whole lot of options on your shelf, um, you can f- you end up setting up. Here's your set piece. This is where we're going to play. This is what you're going to do. And if you guys don't go here and do this, then then you're not going to play on the table tonight, right? So. Um, that that can be limiting in some ways from 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 my perspective, but uh, usually um, you're able to plan that out and know what's coming, and you know when the final boss battle is going to show up, and so you can go out and buy the the big dragon and paint it up and make it look nice. So that's been my experience. It really really ratchets ratchets things up considerably. Like there was this one session where there was a zombie herd, a giant zombie herd. That was coming through, and my players were camping out in an old ruined watchtower and basically trying not to attract the attention of the zombie herd and picking off the the ones that would come up like very quietly so that they didn't. Because, I mean, we're talking like humanoid zombies, but also like t-rex zombies and like giant creatures and stuff like that and what i did was i set this up on the table and i had one of my players i was i told him bring in all of your zombicide games all of them and i basically just pulled all of the zombies every single zombie figure out of like four zombicide games and put them all on the table along with a few zombies that i had and it was just this huge mass and like when they came in, it blew everybody away. It was it was super awesome, and it really really kind of hammered home what I was trying to do. Yeah, that was probably one of the best nights that I I've DM'd. Who doesn't like zombies? <laughs> uh, before we go into Nani, um, again, I know that you're great with painting miniatures. Uh, do you have any advice for people who want to get into that? Um, any specific materials, paints, what kind of painting they should do, brushes, airbrush? I mean, Oh, God. Us. I mean, we could do a whole podcast about that, <laughs> right? Um, How about just just beginners, people who knew nothing? Well, uh, I guess the way that the way that I got back into it is that 
everything that I painted had meaning and was going to be on the table for a session, like the next session or a session a couple of weeks down the road. And it was a nice fire, at least initially, to kind of have under me to to kind of reclaim my creativity in that direction. Uh, my advice would be, like, if you're playing a game, find go find a figure or, or build one on Hero Forge or one of the other digital sites out there or, or, or use your own 3D printer if you have one uh and and paint your character you know there's there's some good you know beginner sets out there by vallejo and and even army painter i'm not the hugest fan of army painter but they were what i started off with you know paint sets and and brushes and stuff airbrushing is not something i would recommend to any any beginners because i'm not a beginner and i'm still trying to figure it out (laughs) just get yourself some paints and a mini and, and start and you know realize that every time you paint a new mini you're going to get a little bit better uh and if you if if you absolutely have not a creative bone in your body and you want something to look a little prettier than gray on your table um then you know there's there's these new kind of contrast paints that scale a and games workshop have come out with that they don't replace skill, but they do enable you to get something you know, at least visually appealing quickly and uh, and more easily than than kind of going through the tried and true processes. Oh, and a wet palette. Use a wet palette. Yes. Dear God. <laughs> I actually do have a question, though. Which would you prefer? Uh, acrylic, just regular acrylic paint or... Anything else that would be a lot better for a beginner? So uh, I would say most hobby paints these days are acrylic, or acrylic based. Even the even the gel based acrylic paints that Scale seventy five comes out with. Yeah, I mean ac- acrylic is fine. I, I oh, and the other thing, if you're going to get something that claims to be pre primed and ready to paint out of the package, uh, wash it and prime it first. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Facts. <laughs> uh, we started talking about painting, and I used to paint cars, so that's what it just. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. So it's, like, like <laughs> that testers enamel stuff, not good, not good. I had this really awesome frost giant mini when I was like sixteen that I completely ruined with testers enamel. It was horrible. Go to the same hobby store where you bought your D and D books to buy your um, uh, your paints. And I would say the other thing is that, especially if you're on the DM side where you are going to need or want um, minis to represent all of the NPCs and monsters and fantabulous things you're going to be hurling at your character or player characters, that's quite a tall order to try and go buy all of those individual things and paint them. Um, but unfortunately, uh, you don't have to do that. Um, so you can find uh, there are Kickstarters. There's all sorts of uh, uh, products that are out there and available. Um, and there are uh, lines of pre-painted, passable, yeah. nice minis that are available from WizKids and uh, others that are coming out that will cover the basis for what you need. Um, to just be able to throw a half a dozen zombies on the table um, because you don't necessarily want to spend the time to paint up all those zombies 
Probably. Um, it depends on how much time yeah. you have. Um, but I would say that um, where I would focus my efforts of painting is on the the key figures. This is the main bad guy. So I, I'm going to go hunt down a mini that matches what I want it to look like. I'm going to paint it the way I want it to look. Yes. And if you don't have a hobby store next to you, most comic book stores have the sections that we're talking about with the minifigures, the paints. Um, and then also, again, most comic book uh, stores have D&D nights where they teach you how to paint or they teach you about the figures. So if you guys have any questions, contact your local comic shop, support them, and you can get way more information um, from them as well. So let's take a step back from D&D and go into Nani. Uh, so in this segment, we kind of talk about crazy stuff that's going on in the world. Uh, so this week, Elon Musk, I swear this is like his 20th child. Uh, <laughs> he has his kid with the singer Grimes. Uh, and they're going to, well, they say they call their baby um, XAEA12. Uh, so the X is representable of the unknown variable. AE is the elven spelling of AI. And A-12 is the precursor to the SR-71, their favorite aircraft. They live in California, so we don't know the real name of the baby, because in California you can only name your baby with the 26 letters of the alphabet. But this was very interesting, and I did not expect anything less from Grimes. <laughs> this is definitely in character with the yes, music that yes. she's put out. So I have a confession to make. Uh, I only barely know who Grimes <laughs> is. And I've never even, I don't have no idea what her music sounds like. I love her music. I mean, I I, I want to say I'm pretty eclectic with my music, but I personally really do like it. It's kind of like sludge techno, more sludge than anything. That explains the name now. <laughs> I love her California. stuff. She's she's British <laughs> or she's some kind of British. I don't know exactly where she's from. She has an accent. So. <laughs> no, with a name like this, it just became Southern California. That's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> in other news Harrisburg University released or tried to release software that can tell you if they are at risk to becoming a criminal uh, now they said this technology is 80% correct uh, they were going to post it on their website and then they took it down uh, they say that it's totally racially unbiased but I mean how can you just look at someone and tell them you're going to be a criminal? Quick, someone call Tom Cruise, the future producer here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and looking at the press release, which they released and then eventually deleted, there's no explanation of what they mean when they say that it is predictive. Uh, they don't explain. Their research isn't out, so... We, it seems like the kind of thing that they said to try to puff up their technology and make it easier to sell. But what they actually said was, we can predict whether or not someone is a criminal. Yeah, I mean, having worked in the startup community for several years, I'm going to call bullshit on <laughs> I mean, I realize that at some point, facial recognition is going to do a lot of stuff that is going to make us uncomfortable. But identify potential future criminals is... Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't even know how they could make that claim because it, there's like a time component to this assumption of what they can do. And it's like, really? You know that for sure right now? You don't think that that's going to uh, percentage of, of predictability is going to remain steady the longer you do this? <laughs> yes. And. 
to put someone in that box saying you're going to become a criminal, that automatically changes the mindset of the person being evaluated. You know, even if they try to perfect this technology, who would buy it? You know, uh, people who are in the hiring industry, people, you know, police officers. And again, that's, you know, putting someone in a box where you're pretty much telling them their future. Pretty much it's, it's kind of like the analogy of like you, t- you tell someone they're going to die tomorrow. Right. They're going to find a way to die tomorrow. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, yes. Yeah, especially as now as with this one. It's just like a crazy white, crazy guy in there with a color wheel trying to match people people up. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, they said that it's not like that. So. Steven, it occurs to me you might have a unique opinion of something like this, given what you've done in your life. What You got any... Uh... <laughs> Uh, no, my uh, my military intelligence background tells me that this seems uh, very far fetched and unlikely. <laughs> exactly. Okay. I have no comment on this. <laughs> I still go with the crazy guy in the color wheel. <laughs> I mean, when we have like you know humanoid killer robots like intermingled with us, then you know, yeah, I want something like a Voight Kampf test to help us you know, determine which ones are real and which ones aren't. Um, I just don't, I don't even know how you could even make this claim. It's just goofy on its face. Yes, It is. Especially when, I mean, when you think about, no pun intended, no (laughs) pun intended. When you think about criminals, I mean, all of it goes down to their background, their upbringing, what they've went through in their life. So how could someone's face tie into any of that? And so I'm just I'm interested in what they're saying. But again, I don't think they have any proof to show how they're getting this data. Uh, you know, going by the standard thing. Like, oh, no, he has beady eyes. He must be. Yeah, pretty cover. much. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for joining us. Um, I hope everyone that is listening got some D&D tips and hints. And if you have any more questions, you can always contact us at gamingtrendpodcast.com. Again, I'm Erica. You can follow me anywhere at The Raging Erica. And I'm John. You can follow me anywhere on Dogfin Studios or... Uh, catch me on while I'm streaming games at Mother Brain Gamer on YouTube and Twitch. And I'm John Farrow. You can, well, you can follow my writings at the site on Gaming Trend. Um, I am also in an actual play of Deadlands Blood Drive called Joker's Wild and have a history and interview podcast called Storytime with Bastards that you can all check out. I'm Stephen Starkey, and you can find me on the Gaming Trend website, too. Just dig around a little well that's not the only place you can also find both of us wednesday nights on twitch uh for our one-on-one D session or D campaign talador adventures that will be dm stephen starkey uh i am uh mike dunn the lead tabletop editor of gaming trend and obviously you can find me there and also at the fool th capital f zero zero capital l because i changed my name a while back and couldn't change it back <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys for listening and we'll catch you next week.